verse uh, from 2 Chronicles chapter 28 this morning. 2 Chronicles 28. It's page 325 in the Bible that says Holy Bible on the front. And the one with the logo on it is page 460. 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and also made cast idols for worshipping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his sons in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Therefore the Lord his God handed him over to the king of Aram. The Arameans defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hands of the king of Israel, who inflicted heavy casualties on him. In one day, Pekah, son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 soldiers in Judah, because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Zikri, an Ephraimite warrior, killed Masaiah and the king's son, oh, the king's son. Azik, oh, sorry, I've been practicing these names and I still can't get them. <laughs> Azrikam, the officer in charge of the palace, and Elkanah, second to the king. The Israelites took captive from their kinsmen 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters. They also took a great deal of plunder, which they carried back to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there. <coughs> And he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria. He said to them, Because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves. But aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow countrymen you have taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. Then some of the leaders in Ephraim, Azariah, son of Jehonanan, Berechiah, son of Meshelmuth, Jehizekiah, son of Shalem, and Amasa, son of Hadlai, confronted those who were arriving from the war. You must not bring those prisoners here, they said, or we will be guilty before the Lord. Do you intend to add to our sin and guilt? for our guilt is already great, and his fierce anger rests on Israel. So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly. The men designated by name took the prisoners, and from the plunder they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink and healing balm. All those who were weak they put on donkeys. So they took them back to their fellow countrymen at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. The Edomites had come again and attacked Judah and carried away prisoners, while the Philistines had raided towns in the foothills and in the Negev of Judah. They captured and occupied Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, Gedaroth, as well as Socho, Timnah and Gibzo and their surrounding villages. The Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had promoted wickedness in Judah 
and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him, but he gave him trouble instead of help. Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and from the princes and presented them to the king of Assyria, but that did not help him. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him. For he thought, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all of Israel. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and he set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and provoke the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. The other events from his reign and all his ways from the beginning to end are written in the book of kings of Judah and Israel. Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of Jerusalem, but he was not placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. Uh, let's pray. Father, help us now to um, quieten our minds and our hearts, uh, enable us to focus on your word, uh, that we might uh, change in our thinking and be those who uh, live our lives in dependence upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. The words dread and horror are words which we aptly apply to the worst possible situations. The nightmare scenarios which involve uh, people suffering and people dying, uh, which is often the case in times of war. Uh, the American Civil War was, I understand, the first war in history uh, where photographs were taken uh, on the battlefield, where cameramen were embedded uh, with the armies. And it's one thing to hear about the horror and the casualties, but uh, when photographs of the corpses of uh, young men uh, lying uh, face down in blood-soaked uh, fields... Uh, began circulating in uh, places such as New York and Boston, public opinion started to change in regards to the war. As people saw uh, visually the horror uh, of warfare. Uh, not unlike, in a sense, that uh, uh, 1972 photograph of uh, Vietnamese children, particularly a, a young naked girl, uh, fleeing in horror uh, from their napalmed village and how that affected. That one image affected people's uh, un feelings in regards to the war as they saw the horror of war. Uh, before the camera, uh, images of battles uh, were done as paintings or as carvings and usually didn't portray the reality, uh, for they were commissioned generally by the, the victor, the victorious king or victorious general, 
uh, in order to be hung on the palace wall. Stone carvings tend to last for a long time. And uh, so museums uh, around the world actually do have ancient images of actual ancient battles. And this is actually true of uh, a battle which we will see in the passage that we'll deal with next week. Uh, it is a uh, stone carving of the siege of the uh, Judean uh, city of Lachish. Uh, a carving which once adorned the palace wall of the victorious Assyrian king. And <clears throat> it's an interesting carving because carved uh, just soon after the actual event, uh, we can see with our own eyes uh, what the soldiers looked like. Uh, their, their faces, that we can see their, their clothing, we can see their, their armoury, we can see uh, the weapons that they used, we can even see the, the military tactics that they were deploying as illustrated uh, in the carving. And we can also see those whom they killed, the dead corpses. Uh, we can see those whom they had captured and what they did to their prisoners, their humiliation and the horror. In fact, when you look closely at this carving, uh, there, are <clears throat> there are two prisoners which are being held by soldiers horizontally as they are being flayed. That is, as they are being skinned alive by their Assyrian captors, skinned alive. A, um, <clears throat> a trophy for the Assyrian king who had that uh, seat, uh, hang, hanging on the, uh, as a, on the wall of his palace, but actually a depiction of dread and horror for those whom he had defeated, who were God's people. They were the people of Judah. It's an image which would uh, typify warfare at that time and it shows us something uh, more graphic than just what the words uh, display for us. Uh, in fact, um, if you turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 29, uh, in verse 8, we see at a... In regards to a situation which was before that actual battle of Lachish, but we see in chapter 29, verse 8 of 2 Chronicles, that the phrase, objects of horror, uh, dread and scorn, are actually used to describe God's people at that time. How about that? God's people, the descendants of Abraham... What did that mean? And, and how had it come to that? And in what sense is it helpful for us? Now, <clears throat> last week we saw the problems with Judah's kings as we looked at three kings last week. And uh, we saw uh, kings who had no backbone, kings who were half-hearted, kings who were proud. And yet in 2 Chronicles chapter 27 where we start today... Uh, there is a new king 
His name is Jotham. And with this new King Josham, there is now hope. Because under his leadership, the nation became powerful and prosperous. And we read about that in verse 6 of chapter 27, uh, where we're told that Jotham grew powerful. Why? Well, because he wasn't half-hearted, because he wasn't proud. He had some backbone. He, he He grew powerful because he walked steadfastly. He didn't waver in his relationship with God. He didn't allow himself to be charmed. He stood firm. He walked steadfastly before the Lord his God. Now, there's no mixed review on Jotham. It doesn't say that he was like that, but... No, surprise, surprise. When you follow God's ways, guess what happens? Things generally go better. (laughs) Who would have thought? Now, chapter 27, as you can see, that's actually a very short chapter in Chronicles, isn't it? And it's also a very short chapter in the history of Judah. Because Jotham's son Ahaz became one of the worst of Judah's kings ever. A shocking king. Uh, remember last week we saw that the, uh, the kings uh, tended to be introduced with a bit of a good review. Um, the, the refrain was, uh, in the introduction to each of those kings last week, that he did what was right in the eyes of the law, Lord. But... <laughs> But he had no backbone. Uh, but, he, uh, but he was proud. But he was. They started out well, but they didn't finish well. Remember that? That's what we saw last week. Um, however, Ahaz doesn't even get that said of him. Ahaz did nothing, absolutely nothing, which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 28, verse 1 to 4. Let me read that again, just to refresh our memories. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, that's in the northern kingdom, and he also made cast idols for worshipping the Baals. He burnt sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and sacrificed his sons in the fire following the detestable ways of the nations the lord had driven out before the israelites he offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree so what is the difference between ahaz and any other baal worshipping child sacrificing pagan king what's the difference Nothing. There is no difference. Is this why God had rescued Israel out of Egypt? Is this why God had made a covenant that he would be their God and they would be his people? Is this why God brought them into the promise? Of course not. He's melted in. He is no different from the pagans around him. Those who worship the god Molech and sacrifice their... Now imagine if a church leader uh, denied Jesus and lived in a way that was no different from anyone else in the world. 
What would you think about that? This is exactly what this guy is doing. Now, God has already shown that he will not tolerate this, that he does punish uh, rebellion against him. However, as Ahaz escalates sin to a new level, so too does God escalate his judgment. For here we see that not only does God allow uh, the enemies of Judah victory over them, but we see introduced in this chapter uh, the idea of God's people being taken as captives and taken out of the land. Um, <clears throat> in verses 5 to 8, the king of Aram, and that's broadly uh, Syria, uh, with its capital at Damascus, the king of Aram, well, he went to war with Judah as did also the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, we know more about this from the book of two kings. And what we know is that uh, <clears throat> these two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Aram, had uh, formed a coalition with one another, primarily uh, in defiance of Assyria, which we'll talk about in a few moments, but that they went into, into war against Judah. And Judah suffered heavy losses, such that in verse 5, the Arameans, that is the Syrians, were told that they took many Jews out of Judah as captives into Damascus. Um, <clears throat> and so too did the king of Israel. Let's read about him in verse 6. Uh, in verse 6, in one day, Pekah, son of Ramalia, killed, get this, 120,000 soldiers in Judah. That's big war casualties. Because Judah had forsaken the Lord, uh, the God of their fathers. Zikri, an Ephraimite warrior, killed Misa, the king's son, the prince. Azrakam, the officer in charge of the palace, and Elkanah, second to the king. And the Israelites took captive from their kinsmen 200,000 wives, sons and daughters, and they also took a great deal of plunder which they carried back to Samaria. Samaria was the kind of the capital of the northern kingdom. Now, this is a disaster for Judah, but who'd caused it? Well, you can peel back the layers, can't you? We can say that, uh, uh, <clears throat> that the, it was caused by the Arameans and the people of Israel. They were the ones who attacked. But you can say, well, it was actually caused by Judah because they had sinned against God, which means that at the root, it's actually God who's allowed this to happen. This is God's response to their sin. Now, uh, this period of history was a uh, period of significant prophetic activity. Um, for example, this was the era in which Isaiah lived. And we learn a bit, Isaiah comes up in next week's um, passage. So, Isaiah was prophesying at this time. 
in verse 9, God raised up a prophet uh, by the name of Oded. And Oded had a word for Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, verse 9, pick it up there. In verse 9, Oded, a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there. And he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria. And he said to them, Because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your, what does it say? Your slaves. But aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow countrymen who have t you have taken as prisoners for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. They were God's instrument of judgment, uh, <clears throat> but they've committed war crimes. Uh, they, have <clears throat> they have slaughtered uh, the people of Judah in such a rage that that is a rage that, is, that has been heard in heaven. This is war crimes we're talking about here. And now they intend to make their own kinsmen 200,000 uh, women, uh, wives, uh, sons and daughters, uh, fellow descendants of Abraham, uh, <coughs> descendants of those whom God brought out of slavery into Egypt, uh, out of Egypt's Egyptian slavery, and now they intend to turn them into their slaves. Now this... <coughs> I've got to say there's hardly anything good in this, is there? But, but, in the midst of the darkness, there's this beautiful and rare light that shines from this scenario. And we, we see it, and it's because in order to, in verses 12 to 15, in order to avert the judgment of God, the civic leaders of Samaria, they confront the military and they demand that the prisoners be released. In other words, they've, they've heard the prophet and they've said, yeah, we'll repent. Um, verse 15. In verse 15, the men designated by name took the prisoners and from the plunder, they, they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, with food and drink, and with, with healing balm. They tended to their wounds. And, and all those who were weak, they put on donkeys. So they took them back to their fellow countrymen at Jericho, the city of Palms, and then they returned to Samaria. These are the original Good Samaritans, <laughs> aren't they? This is a good picture here. This is a light shining in the darkness. But things are still grim for King Ahaz, who now makes a very serious mistake. And I think that to understand uh, the nature of the mistake, uh, it helps us to... Um, to know a little bit about what was going on politically uh, in the region. 
from information that we gleaned from, uh, from two kings. Uh, Ahaz was the king of Judah in the latter part of the 8th century BC, uh, from um, 732 BC through to 715 BC. Remember, when you're in BC, you've got to work backwards <laughs> uh, with the numbers. About, about 13 years before he became king, a man uh, with a rather interesting name of Tiglath-Pileser III, uh, love that name, uh, became the king of Assyria, which is kind of roughly uh, Iraq of today, um, that Mesopotamia area. And we know what Tiglath-Pileser III looked like from this carving. Can you see that? And I've printed in your bulletins as well. Uh, we, we know what he looked like. This is a carving which sits in the British Museum in London. Now, in case you're thinking this is Scott showing off his recent um, holiday photo snaps, it's not. I did not take this photograph in the British Museum in London. I took it in the Australian National Museum at the British Museum exhibition in Canberra a few years ago. <laughs> It's worth going to Canberra sometimes, folks. Now, Assyria uh, was, was the rising power of the region. And under Tiglath-Pileser III, they launched a campaign to, uh, of conquest over the whole region. And it affected Israel in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, more so than it affected Judah in the south. And so uh, the north was under serious threat uh, from Tiglath-Pileser. Uh, but instead of turning to God, uh, they actually cut a deal with the pagan king. Uh, the king of Israel at the time paid Tiglath-Pileser uh, 1,000 talents of silver um, so that Tiglath-Pileser would protect him in his position as king, protect him rather than destroy him. Sort of like a bit of a protection racket going on. You know, I'll give you 1,000 pieces of silver and I'll do whatever you say uh, as long as you keep me in my role as king and don't wipe me out. A few years later, <clears throat> there was a different king of Israel, um, King Pekah, and he decided, he inherited this kind of deal, this relationship with Assyria, and he decided he didn't like that, so that he was going to shift his allegiance away from Assyria and uh, get into an agreement with, uh, with, with Syria, with, with Aram. Uh, instead of Assyria. The result of that was catastrophic uh, because the, the Assyrian response uh, meant that that whole um, upper part of the northern kingdom of Israel with Syrim, Syria to the west, uh, that then became a province of Assyria. Make sense? And in doing that, the Assyrians took the, the upper class 
the upper echelons of uh, Israel's society and deported them out of Israel into exile in Assyria and replaced them with immigrants from all other parts of the, the Assyrian Empire. So what we see happening in the northern part of the northern kingdom of Israel is you're now getting this racial watering down uh, occurring. Israel as a kingdom still existed, but it was reduced in size uh, into the southern part of the northern kingdom and with Samaria as its, uh, as its capital city, uh, it was now a much reduced and a puppet state of Assyria. Um, their next king didn't like the arrangement and so he tried to ally himself with Egypt and be, rather than Assyria and because of that action he became the very last king of Israel as the Assyrians uh, launched a military campaign, they uh, besieged the capital city of Samaria uh, for three years and if a city is in siege for three years it's pretty dreadful living inside that city and uh, they destroyed the capital in 721 BC. Uh, those who survived, uh, many of them were deported to Assyria and replaced again with other peoples from uh, other parts of the empire, uh, whilst others who had survived were simply left to live as peasants. This is the nightmare scenario for the Kingdom of Israel. Um, dread, horror and scorn would be an apt description for them. It was now finished. Northern Kingdom of Israel was now over. It's never happened again. Uh, they became the Assyrian province of Samaria. Now, why is all of this relevant? Well, it's relevant because uh, prior to their assimilation into Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, when the northern kingdom of Israel went into cahoots with, with Syria, with, the, with Aram, and they went to war against Judah, who did King Ahaz turn to for help? Did he turn to God for help? Is that what he did? Let's have a look at uh, verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. The Edomites had again come and attacked Judah and carried away prisoners. So there you go, more deportation taking place. While the Philistines had raided towns in the foothills and in the Negev of Judah, that's the desert of Judah, they captured and occupied Beth Shemesh, Ajalon and Gedaroth, and as well as Soko, Timnah and Gimzo with their surrounding villages. 
The Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had promoted wickedness in Israel and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him, but he gave him trouble instead of help. And Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and from the princes and presented them to the king of Assyria. Now, that did not help him. You know, uh, do you remember when, in uh, 1 Chronicles, when, um, when Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord? There was that great, um, great occasion, the dedication of the temple. And, and Solomon prayed, uh, asking God for his blessing. And when he prayed, he, he said to God, uh, when, when your people go to war and when your people are in, in, in difficult circumstances, uh, when they are struggling against their enemies and when they, they turn towards this city and they turn towards the temple and they cry out to you, hear their prayer and save them, deliver them from their enemies. Ahaz didn't turn to the temple and ask God to be his saviour, he turned to the king of Assyria and asked Tiglath-Pileser III to be his saviour, his strength, his refuge. His and he looted the temple. He looted the temple to pay the pagan king who in verse 19 gave him more trouble than he gave him help. This was actually a dreadful decision that had long-term effects, impact on the southern kingdom. But you'd think that since Tiglath-Pileser failed to help him, that that might be the cue for Ahaz to think, well, you know what, maybe I should turn to God at this point and ask God, did he do that? No, not even as a last resort did he turn to God. In fact, he did the very opposite in verse 22. Verse 22, in his time of trouble, King Ahaz became, not repentant, but even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus, who had defeated him because he thought, well, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I'll sacrifice them so maybe they'll help me. But they were his downfall. And the downfall of all Israel. So because Aram, the Syrians, had beaten him, he assumed, well, that's because their gods are pretty strong. And if it worked for them, it'll probably work for me. Isn't it interesting how when some people think about spiritual things, it's often more about what they think will work for them than what is actually true and right. And so, Ahaz, he, he gathered up the furnishings from God's temple and he chopped them into little pieces. He decommissioned the temple, he closed the doors and bolted it up and he set up altars to false gods on every street corner in Jerusalem and in every town and village throughout, the, throughout Ju Judah. 
there's this classic piece of understatement in verse 25. I want you to have a look at it. Where he, the chronicler says about Ahaz that he aroused the anger of the Lord. <laughs> you bet he did. <laughs> no surprises there at all, is there? Now, the events that I described earlier on that occurred in the northern kingdom, th those events were still unfolding at this time. Uh, so that, that was still happening. In fact, it, uh, it, it wouldn't be until... Um, so Judah's uh, daughters and sons and their mothers had not yet been returned from their captivity. And it would only be six years after Ahaz's death that the northern kingdom would finally uh, come to an end. But So he hasn't seen it all played out in the north as yet. But what he has seen play out, he's not taking much notice of, is he? He hasn't learnt the lesson that the escalation of sin against God leads to an escalation of response from God. And this is where we leave it, in verse chapter 28. He dies and he's buried. There doesn't seem to be much hope for God's people in all of this, does there? Uh, the God's people living in God's land under God's blessing, the Davidic king ruling God's kingdom forever. It's all looking a bit shaky, don't you reckon? <laughs> a bit shaky. Until the next king, the son of Ahaz, who is Hezekiah. Now, we're going to hear a lot about Hezekiah next week, and Peter's going to be preaching for us, but just have a look at chapter 29, verses 1 and 2. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Who is he being compared to? He's being compared to David, isn't he? In fact, throughout Hezekiah's reign, we'll see that there's some uh, the, 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 the constant refrain is comparisons with the great king David. It looks like uh, God is not done with Judah as yet, doesn't it? Uh, that there is hope uh, that uh, Hezekiah is a godly king. As I say, we'll get to know more about him next week, but we just need to get a little bit acquainted with him today. Because when this friend, freshly minted monarch um, gives his uh, State of the Nation address, what does he tell his people? In verses 8 and 9, he says to his people, Open your eyes, folks. Have a look around. Our fathers have fallen by the sword. Our wives, our daughters, our sons, they're in captivity. This is the nightmare scenario. In fact, he says we are now an object of, of, of dread. We are an object of horror. We are an object of scorn. And why? Because our parents turned their faces away from God's temple 
our parents turned their backs away from God and we are under his judgment and rightly so. But Hezekiah knew that God is merciful and gracious, that God forgives all who truly turn back to him, that God is the God of second chances. Which means that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done in the past, no matter how far you have wandered away from the truth, how far you've walked away from God, that it doesn't have to end that way. God can and God will forgive you through Jesus. Now, Hezekiah, of course, didn't know about Jesus. But he did know that, that God is our saviour, that God is our only hope, that God is our only strength in times of trouble, because God had proved that. When he rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt and made them his special people. And so, from day one, King Hezekiah gets down to business. He rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work and the first, very first thing he does is he reopens the temple and he sends the, the, the crew in to, to clear out all of the pagan rubbish that was being stored in God's temple and take it down to the tip and burn it. And then he gathers together all of the priests and all of the Levites and as we will see next week, he invites all of Judah. He sends out invitations to all of Judah and he sends out invitation to all that was left of Israel. And he invites God's people to come to Jerusalem because we're going to do something special. We're going to do something that not one of them had done ever in their lives we're going to celebrate the Passover, that long-forgotten tradition, that Passover that helps us to remember who we are, that helps us to remember what God has done for us, that he is our saviour, that helps us to know our identity as his special people. It helps us as Christians <laughs> Because it points us to Jesus, who is the Passover lamb, who is the one who has cut a new covenant so that we become the special people of God. More about that next week, but just as an aside in closing, something I noticed about Hezekiah is that Hezekiah is the great reminder that no matter how ungodly your parents have been, that their ungodliness does not need to shape who you are as a person under God. That God can make uh, you a great person uh, as you put your trust in him. The flip side of that is that if you had ungodly parents, that's actually no excuse for your ungodliness either. <laughs> that God can change you and God can, uh, can, can use you to do good things in his service. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, 
Father, it's a dreadful passage of Scripture uh, because of what it says about sin and walking away from you. But it, uh, it's a passage that gives us uh, hope uh, in uh, the, the plan that you have for your people. Father, we pray that we would be uh, men and women who, uh, uh, who do not walk away from you, who do not turn to idols, who do not turn to the things of this world to be our helper. Help us, Lord God, to be penitent and to trust in you in all things, uh, especially that you are our saviour. In Jesus' name, amen.